The following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Good morning. If you can hear my voice, please find your way back to your seat, grab your Bibles, and open to the book of Jeremiah. Again, if, if you have your Bible, please open to Jeremiah chapter 11. We're going to read from verses 1 to 17. A smaller passage as Jeremiah goes. Jeremiah 11, verses 1 through 17. We'll read, and then I invite you to give thanks to God for His holy, inspired, and infallible Word. The Word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Hear the words of this covenant and speak to the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do all that I command you. So shall you be my people, and I will be your God, that I may confirm the oath that I swore to your fathers to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is at this day. And then I answered, So be it, Lord. And the Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Hear the words of this covenant and do them. For I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. And they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And therefore I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded to them to do, but they did not. Again, the Lord said to me, A conspiracy exists among the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They have turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as your streets of Jerusalem are the altars you have set up to shame, altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore do not pray for this people, or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their trouble. What right has my beloved in my house? When she has done many vile deeds, can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Can you then exult? The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but with the roar of a great tempest, he will set fire to it, and its branches will be consumed. The Lord of hosts, who planted you, has decreed disaster against you because of the evil 
that the house of Israel and the house of Judah have done, provoking me to anger by making offerings to Baal. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we ask now, God, by your help and by your spirit, that we would know the intention of your word for us this morning, that we would take seriously the warnings of it, that we would heed the, the counsel of the word before us as we look to the example of Judah and Jerusalem as what not to do. We would listen to the cries and the pleading of Jeremiah and indeed even to the pleading of the Spirit now within us to examine ourselves and turn and repent from idols. And I pray, God, that above all, the gospel of Christ would be clear, that we would know that we who were once under wrath and condemned, who would justly suffer the consequences of our sin and rebellion against you, could now know the truth that we have been set free from such condemnation in Christ. Would that be true and clear to us this morning? Encourage us as we walk in that truth. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Just over 12 years ago, I made one of the most important commitments that a man can make. That is, of course, the commitment to marry my wife. Now, of all the things that were said on that fateful day, April 2nd, 2011, much of which I don't remember because I was blacked out and on autopilot, but the transcripts exist. Of all of those words, the two most important words that I said that day were what? Can you guess? I do. Now, I use those words all the time in different contexts. I speak of myself and of myself doing things quite often. And in other contexts, the words I do don't mean much. They simply refer to me doing something. But in the context of a wedding ceremony, where I'm making a commitment to Brittany, and Brittany makes her commitment to me, the words I do now carry a much greater weight and significance than they would anywhere else in life. Why? Because what I'm actually saying I commit to, what I'm actually pledging my life to, is to the welfare of another person. I'm entering into what is often called a covenant, this union, and pledging myself to her and her to me that through sickness and health, richer or poorer, till death do us part, we are together for the glory of God. That we would work on each other, to help each other, to love and serve one another. And so when the words come out, I do, we are making a commitment to love, to serve, to give of ourselves, to lay ourselves down, to suffer with and for one another. The depth of that commitment, which no one on their wedding day can even fully appreciate until much, much later down the marriage road. Well, something similar is happening in our passage. When God enters into covenant or he enters into a relationship where he pledges himself, and Israel pledged themselves, the words of that affirmation, we do, as James and Sarah have committed this morning, and you have on their behalf as well. What Jeremiah says and affirms in verse 5, his amen, so be it, Lord, 
is a commitment and an affirmation of the relationship that God intends to have with his people. We call that relationship a covenant. Now, a covenant can go by many other words, and it carries a lot of different meanings. Even in the Bible, it can be a treaty of sort, a contract. It can be a kind of pact between two parties. But at the end of the day, when God makes a covenant with another, this is something that is much more solemn and much more important, holier, sacred, and sanctified than a typical promise. For God who makes the promise is true, perfect, good, righteous. And he makes this promise with every ounce of his own character and person behind it. God, we are told, cannot lie. And so what he says will always and forever be true. So God covenants with his people. And Jeremiah 11 is a reminder of that covenant. You can hear the word several times mentioned, covenant, over and over and over again. This oath that he swore, the covenant that he made, the conditions and the terms of that covenant, which is to guide and guard Israel in their walk and journey before God in obedience. And there's no difference today. Though we may have a different covenant to which we ascribe and affirm, we still belong to God by means of a covenant. This is how God has chosen to interact and enter into relationship with his people, through covenant. This is a solemn and sacred pledge where God gives up himself and brings us into relationship with him. What God does throughout the Bible then is progressively reveal himself through these covenants. The first covenant we see in the Bible is there in Genesis. Though not by the same words, we learn later that God makes a covenant with Adam in creation. And Adam's job in that covenant is to obey God and to, for all of humanity, secure glory, which Adam fails to do. Later, we see God make another covenant with Noah after the flood. This is a covenant that he makes that governs all of creation, this pledge to not destroy the earth by way of water or flood any longer. And he hangs the sign of that covenant in the sky, the rainbow. A little later then, we see God make another covenant, this time with Abraham, a promise and a pledge to Abraham that from him a multitude would come, a, a people for God, marked off by their relationship with God that would be a blessing to all the world, and from whom all of the promises that God has made so far would come true. Stipulations would be added to this covenant later down the line, namely circumcision. And then a little further down in history, we get to Moses. And God makes another covenant with Moses there on Mount Sinai after he leads them out of the land of Egypt, over the Red Sea, to the mount, up the mountain, speaks with God. And this is where we get, of course, the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone, the Levitical law, the Deuteronomy. Everything that comes from this is what we often refer to as the Mosaic law or covenant. That's the old covenant. This, of course, has much stipulations and much for promise. God continues and pledges himself to be their God and they, his people, blessings, prosperity, peace, victory, if they obey the commandments he gives them. A little further down the line later, we see that another covenant is made with David. When David, his king, decides to make a house for God, and God says, No, you don't make me a house. I will make you a house in covenants or pledges with David that so long as David and his children obey the statutes and the commands of God, someone from David's throne will remain 
forever and a kingdom which would have no end. Now, in all sorts of ways, these representative covenant heads, Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, they fail. Though the covenant that they have entered into with God remains breached because of their failure to obey, God's end of his covenant, his pledge, always remains true. Well, that brings us to Jeremiah, writing after the days of David. And he's referring to those same covenants, the covenant of Moses, the covenant that he made ultimately with Abraham, is governing all of the life of God's covenant people. And he will begin to speak now of the ineffectuality, the the deficiency of this covenant because of our failure to obey. This is why Judah's in trouble in the first place. This is why Israel's already under Assyrian captivity. They were not obeying the covenant of God. They chose not to accept God as their God. They rejected him and they turned to other gods around them. They disobeyed. They rejected and they breached the covenant. So Jeremiah says the problem is that you cannot keep this covenant. Though God has pledged himself to you and all the blessings of this can be yours if you obey. We begin to see that that covenant is ultimately ineffective for the promises of life if we alone were to grab hold of them with our merit. So later in Jeremiah, which we'll see next year if we stay on track, is that a new covenant, a better covenant is needed if we are to ever receive the true promises of all the covenants that have been revealed So little by little, God reveals himself and the nature of his plans and his purposes for the redemption of all of mankind through covenant. He intends to establish a relationship with us and reveal more and more about himself so that we, knowing him, would more faithfully obey him. And yet, in the Old Testament, over and over again, we see man fail to keep their end of the covenant. The stipulations, the terms, the commandments there often prove too difficult for man to do in their own strength. So God intends to establish a new and better covenant with a new and better mediator, one in which man no longer is required to obey to earn the blessings, but whose obedience is secured for them by God himself. That's where we're going. That's where the whole Old Testament leads to recognize that every person here who is born of a man and a woman has a sinful, corrupt human nature which rebels against God, even in the smallest recesses of our brains and our hearts, and we need God's own help to obey. So the law then given to Israel, the law of Moses, the commands there given to his people were not there to be obeyed that they may receive eternal life, but to lead them to recognize the truth that all of us should recognize this morning, that without God's help, we receive no such blessing and favor from him. The prosperity, the peace, and the peopleness of belonging to God is only ours if God secures it for us. The two ditches we tend to fall in on either side of that, of course, is that we can secure that on our own or that it's hopeless and can never be secured. Israel swung both sides of this pendulum, and we see them either becoming legalistic about the law or turning to other gods in hope that they might find restoration, hope, and purpose in them. What we're going to look at this morning is three characteristics of God's person 
as he reveals himself through his covenant and as he calls Judah through Jeremiah to return to them. Three aspects of God's character will examine two covenants, the old and the new, and of course turn and end with our attention to the one Christ. So if you're taking notes, that's three, two, one. Three characters of God, two covenants, one Christ. Let's consider God's character first. God is sufficient. In the first five verses of Jeremiah's pleading, his prophesying through God to Judah, we learn that God is sufficient. He's making the case here that God and his word was enough for Judah, that there was no need to ever turn for everything that they could have ever wanted or hoped for or needed. God had already promised to provide for them. That's what it says. Hear the words of the covenant. Speak to them. Verse 3. Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. It said, listen to my voice. Do all that I command you. And if you do, you will be my people and I will be your God. And in this, he confirms for them the oath that he swore to their fathers. Think of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and on. To give them a land flowing with milk and honey even as it is to this day, which Jeremiah, of course, affirms as true. Just in this short reminder, when he says, Jeremiah, go and remind them, tell them of the covenant that I made with them. Remind them that I'm sufficient for all that they have ever needed. How do they remind you of this? In three ways. First, they are to hear the covenant, namely the terms of the covenant, the blessing and the curse that would follow if the terms were not met or if they were obeyed to confirm the oath of the covenant, and finally to accept the covenant, all of which points to God's sufficiency as our God and we as his people. That's that's what they were supposed to do. In these first five verses, we see really the pattern of God speaking, promising, confirming, and then our acceptance and affirming of that. This is what the picture of the covenantal relationship ought to look like. He says, listen, listen, Hear the words of the covenant. Speak to them that they also might hear. What are they to hear? They are to hear the words of the covenant. Or your translation might have terms. Hear the words of this covenant. What does this mean? Well, every covenant has terms attached to it. The term of the covenant of the Mosaic law was obedience. The term is obey. If you obey, blessing. You get the land flowing with milk and honey. I will be your God. You will be my people. Fail to meet this term. Fail to obey. Curse is the outcome there in verse 3. Curse is the man who does, not, who does not hear the words of this covenant that I commanded. That is hear and do. So we are first to hear the word of the covenant speak. The term is obey. The warning is if you don't obey, cursing would come. That is the curse of God's wrath and judgment against all unrighteousness and disobedience, ultimately rebellion against him, or blessing. The land that flows with milk and honey, but more importantly, God as their God, and he, them as his people. They are to hear in God's covenant the words that speak to them life of promise and blessing. But not only are they to hear, but they are to affirm. They are to confirm and remember God's 
character in it. Because God is sufficient, he is sufficient in two ways. He is first righteously sufficient. His character is righteous, perfect, wise, just. And so all of his commands, which govern the terms of obedience, are good and right commands. As you remember the law that was given to Moses to give to the people, you are to obey it, he says, because God's word and commands are always righteous. And so by obeying God's law, we affirm his righteousness. But we also confirm God's faithfulness. He is faithfully sufficient. That he has pledged himself on the basis of their obedience to always give them what they need. That he would never leave them nor forsake them. That was the promise that he gave even to Joshua before they came and took over Canaan. So we are to hear the terms of the covenant and in our hearts and minds confirm and remember God's righteousness and faithfulness as he pledges himself to our good on the basis of our obedience. And lastly, they were to hear, confirm, and accept. Jeremiah represents the right response to this covenant. Reminder, amen, Lord. Amen simply means so be it. Let it be done. So he says, yes, God, to this. Now, he understands how difficult obedience to the law would be. This is why Judah's in this mess in the first place, that they fail to obey God's law perfectly, righteously, as God himself is. And yet the acceptance and the affirmation of this covenant, this oath, this pledge God makes, reveals not simply our ability to keep a law or a command, but God's sufficiency to help us obey all that he has commanded us to do. Now, in a second, we'll show that we're not under this old covenant. But Israel was. And Jeremiah is speaking to Judah so that they could understand that they should have trusted God's sufficiency to help them obey, not their own strength or sufficiency to do it on their own. Does that make sense? So what's revealed in the covenant made with Moses, given to Judah and to all of Israel, is first God's sufficiency that they were to accept, to trust, to confirm, and to submit themselves to. In essence, we're saying that here God reveals himself as enough. He shows himself worthy to be trusted because he is sufficient to give all that they could have ever need. There's a famous quote attributed to Augustine, who's an early church father, who said something to the effect of, Lord, command what you will, but then will what you command. Take my life and, and tell me to do anything you want me to do with it, Lord, but you're going to have to help me obey you. This, of course, speaks to the sufficiency of God to help us. We see this acknowledged in the kinds of prayers that would not be answered because of Israel's disobedience. The false gods cannot listen and help in their time of need, and God himself will turn away his listening ear in their time of need because they have already proven themselves unwilling to seek God's help. So this, of course, means that God is always willing to hear when we cry for help. But there is a point in which our cries for help may fall on deaf ears when our hearts have become so hardened, when we no longer believe God is sufficient to help. 
So God's character is sufficient, is revealed. The second aspect of God's character revealed is that God is supreme. We see God's sufficiency in the first five verses. In verses 6 through 14, we see God's supremacy. Primarily, we see this through the rejection of his kingship, his supremacy, his authority, and the breaking of the covenant. Verses 6 through 4. When he tells them again to proclaim the words of the city of Jerusalem and Judah, hear the words of the covenant and do them. And I warned them, and I brought them out of the land of Egypt, and I warned them persistently, saying, Obey my voice. Verse 8, Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. We've dealt with stubbornness in Jeremiah already. Therefore I brought them upon them all the words of this covenant, that is, all the curses of the covenant which I commanded them to do, which they did not do. What is revealed in this picture of the covenant is not simply God's sufficiency to provide the help we need to obey God, that Israel needed to obey God, but also God's supremacy to command in the first place, His worthiness and deservedness of our obedience. God is supreme. And yet here in Judah, He's rejected. His kingship is thrown off. His authority is set aside. His covenant is broken. They've turned to other gods. They walk in the stubbornness of the heart, and therefore God brings all the curses of disobedience upon them. We see, in the Old Testament, idolatry is a rejection of God's supremacy. It turns to other gods, false gods, and says, we will worship you above the true God. It's an affront to God's rightful place as the one true God when we turn to other idols. We reject Him as supreme and instead put whatever else above. And this isn't unique to to Israel or to Judah. This plagues every one of us. Often we are tempted into idolatry and to cast off the supremacy of God in His right place over our lives to govern our affairs, to demand of us what He will, even as we intellectually assent to the sufficiency of God's help to obey Him. Let me just briefly talk about some of these temptations to idolatry that you and I may experience. Why are we tempted to go to idols instead of the true God? Why do we find ourselves over and over again replacing God and the seat of our heart with another idol? One of these reasons is because of the issue of tangibility or control. So one of the appeals of idolatry is that there's a tangible nature to the idols themselves. This is certainly true in Jeremiah's day where they actually carved out wooden images that they could use, touch, feel, carry. Unlike the invisible God, idols can be seen. They can be decorated, touched, they can be manipulated. We could fashion those gods according to our own desires, make them look the way we want. The temptation lies in the illusion of being able to control or to manipulate a deity that we think can grant specific desires or bring favorable outcomes. At the heart of our idolatry then, in this case, is the ability or the desire to control God. But the immortal, invisible, only wise God can't be controlled by us, and so when we desire control strong enough, we cast aside His authority and we make idols of our own image, that which we can manipulate, we can control. Let me give maybe a couple examples of what this might look like. You may uh, know of someone who carries around a talisman or sort of personal good luck charm. 
that they rub or they keep in their pocket, some sort of statue or some sort of precious, tactile, tactical, tangible thing that they consider as lucky. Now, this isn't simply to dismiss old wives' tales like four-leaf clovers and those ideas, but somebody who puts their trust in the balancing of the universe for their favor often feels like they're trying to control or manipulate reality in their favor instead of trusting in a personal God who is supreme above all things. And it's not just creating little personal gods or talismans out of things that they carry around with them. It also could be engaging in other superstitious practices like reading horoscopes, seeking guidance from fortune tellers, that they may gain a sense of control over future events. I often walk downtown, and one of the things that I see often as I walk down Caroline Street is a fortune teller often sits outside offering palm readings. Friends, can I tell you, not only is it unbiblical and non-Christian, it's borderline demonic, if not straight from Satan. They offer you a tangible way to manipulate your own future, to have control over your own life, which is not promised. In some sense, we're tempted to gain tangibility and control, and so we seek these false gods. But that's just one aspect. Another temptation to idolatry is that of materialism or security. It often involves worshiping gods that are associated with material wealth, success, comfort, protection. Because in a world driven by materialistic pursuits, the allure of idols that are promising worldly gain and security can always be strong. We know this need not be a totem in our house. It could be the promise of a bigger paycheck, the corporate ladder, the glass ceiling, the big house, the lawn, the comfort. See, people are enticed by the prospect of gaining power, wealth, security through their devotion to those idols. Offers a sense of reassurance, a false hope that material possessions can provide a lasting fulfillment or security. But friends, it cannot. Some examples of this, of course, would be pursuing wealth and success at all costs. There's nothing wrong with wealth or success, but pursuing this at all costs might mean that you have an idol. Believing that financial prosperity or material possessions will bring ultimate satisfaction and security. It may look like devoting excessive time or energy or resources to accumulate material goods. Placing one's trust in them for a sense of stability or happiness. Our temptation to idolatry could look like certain cultural influences or societal acceptance. See, idolatry is often intertwined, deeply intertwined with cultural practices, societal norms. It can be passed down through generations, embedded in our traditions. It can be accepted as something that's normal, unquestioned. The pressure to conform to cultural expectations and gain acceptance from others can be a powerful temptation to engage in idolatrous practices even if deep down one knows that they contradict the truth. For instance, participating in cultural rituals, ceremonies, or festivals that involve worshiping gods or idols contrary to one's own convictions revealed through Scripture, merely to fit in or gain acceptance within a specific community, workplace, group of friends. These are true, genuine temptations to idolatry, we may be tempted because of a desire for immediate gratification. See, idolatry often caters to human desires for instant gratification, don't they? Idols will promise quick fixes, immediate results, 
the fulfillment of earthly desires. People are drawn to idols that offer immediate satisfaction rather than the patient and faithful waiting, which is required of us often on the true God's timing and guidance. For instance, you may be seeking instant gratification through the indulgence and addictive behavior such as substance abuse, gambling, this reckless pursuit of pleasure. You may be tempted to turn to new age practices that are hidden or smuggled into Christian language. I think that anything that is most dangerous to the youngest generation of Christians, it would be this, the smuggling in of new age ideologies under the veil of Christianity. These ideologies promise quick fixes. They promise you a better anthropology. They promise you ways to unlock some sort of secret knowledge or spiritual growth, this sort of enlightenment or self-empowerment, this willingness to surrender to a higher power. These sound like good and Christian things, but we can, if we are discerning, recognize that this is simply a temptation to fulfill an immediate desire for gratification. We're tempted also just simply by plain old spiritual deception. We can be deceived into believing false gods. They often masquerade themselves as divine beings, we're told in Scripture. They promise spiritual enlightenment or connection. People may be enticed by the allure of mystical experiences, secret knowledge, supernatural encounters, visions and experiences that only you can get through this one small, narrow exception. This is deception. And they can lead individuals like you and I to believe that you have found a higher spiritual truth while in reality you have simply turned away from the true and living God in Scripture. It's no wonder that we see Christians today leave the faith because they've explored occult practices like witchcraft, divination, channeling, manifesting, all in the pursuit of supernatural encounters or secret knowledge. You could be drawn to certain cults even under the guise of Christianity, alternative religious movements that claim to possess this exclusive spiritual insight or access to divine realms beyond the teaching of Scripture. This is dangerous and spiritual deception, all which tempts us from the true God to idols. So what the covenant here is meant to teach us is not only that God is sufficient and that what He has commanded us, He gives us the ability to obey by strength and faith, but also that He is supreme, that all of these idols must be cast down and we must serve Him, the true and living God. That compared to God, there is no other. The third and final quality of God's character that we see that's revealed through the covenant is of God's sovereignty. We see His sufficiency, His supremacy, and finally His sovereignty. And primarily we see His sovereignty exercised in His anger against it. Look in the last several verses, verse 15 and onward. He says, What right has my beloved in my house when she's done many evil deeds? The Lord once called you a green olive, a beautiful tree, fruitful, with good fruit, but with the roar of a great temptest, he will set fire to it. Its branches will be consumed. Look at the end of verse 17. He has been provoked to anger by their offerings to Baal, this false god. So God's sovereignty is shown or displayed by his anger that God, as the Psalms say, is in the heaven and does all that he pleases. 
when we recognize God as sovereign, what Israel should have recognized is that God has the right to demand of us all that he wills and that we must give ourselves to him because he is king over us. He has created us and we are his. We have no right to leave what he has commanded us to do. And when we do, we provoke the anger of God, which in due course was poured out against Israel and Judah. So God is sufficient, God is supreme, and God is sovereign. That's what's revealed just in part by the covenant, which Jeremiah now wants to remind him of so that he gets a clearer picture of Jesus. Well, that's the three aspects of God's character. Secondly, let's consider the two covenants which are laid out for us in his word. Those two covenants, of course, being the old and the new. Now, the old covenant, that namely the Mosaic law, which we discuss here, is what we call conditional. It was conditioned upon the obedience of Israel to the commands of God. This old covenant was conditional, particularly in relation to man's salvation. How was man to be saved? They needed to obey perfectly God's word and law. But, of course, man could not. It wasn't as if these things were merely impossible for man to do, but for sinful man it was. And therefore, the old covenant, we must remember, is not only conditional in relation to man's salvation, but also was always intended to be impermanent. It was not meant to be the only covenant that God makes with people, the most permanent covenant that he makes with his people. Rather, we have, as Jeremiah teaches us later in chapter 31, a promise of a new covenant. And this new covenant in relation to man's salvation is not conditional, but is unconditional in the sense that now the blessings are not conditioned upon your obedience to God's law. It's not conditioned upon any merit or any good that you would do. And this covenant is permanent, not impermanent, like the old. So as we compare and contrast these two covenants, and we read the Bible, you ought to keep both in mind, particularly as you read in the We need to recognize that the nature of the old covenant was always meant to come to an end. And it was always meant to lead us and point us to the new and better covenant. This covenant of grace, or what is called the new covenant. One is impermanent, the other is. In fact, if you will, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. There the author steeped in Old Testament covenantal theology, as we all would do well to be, teaches us about the impermanence of this old covenant. In fact, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. He says, Jesus is the high priest. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven, a minister in the holy places, in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, and thus it is necessary for this priest, that's under the old covenant, to have something to offer. Why? Because he was sinful. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. They serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying that, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown to you on the mountain. Because as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since he is in, it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. 
So there's something inherently faulty about the Old Covenant, namely that it can only be mediated by sinful priests and that it was impermanent. There's something defective about it. For he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant. Here he's quoting Jeremiah. With the house of Israel, with the house of Jacob, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, this new covenant he describes. I will put my law into their minds. I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice, this is the same promise that was given if Israel had obeyed the old. But here it is specifically ensured for them in the new. Verse 11, They shall not teach, each one his own neighbor, and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. So where in the old covenant some would be saved by faith, but not all, in the new covenant, all would be saved. All would be members of this new and better covenant. I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. And this is the key here in verse 13. And speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And in verse 9, he speaks all of the need for this better and new covenant. So what does the author of Hebrews mean when he quotes Jeremiah and speaks of this new and better covenant coming? He says that the old covenant was faulty, was impermanent, and could only do a set of specific things. And if you remember in our study in Galatians, the law and the covenant was meant to drive us to the heart of Christ. It was meant to expose in our own heart that we were unable and completely, uh, completely tied from being able to obey God's commands because of the sinfulness of our heart. And so we need a new covenant. But of course, with a new covenant, we need a new and better mediator. So we see the three characteristics of God's displayed and typified in both the old and the new covenants, the three characters, the two covenants. We are led, of course, to the one Christ, who is the only means by which all of this can be made ours. Christ, of course, brings to us all the promises of the old and the new covenant. Notice what he says here. In verse 15, what right has the beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Essentially here, what the author here is saying is there is no hope any longer for Judah. Their discipline is a foregone conclusion. So the question is, if there is no sacrifice which can be offered to God to avert God's wrath, what hope do they have? Well, if their hope is in the means of the old covenant, there is no hope. The sacrificial system fails them. But if their hope is in the promise of God's new and better covenant, this Messiah, this mediator that he would send, if their hope was in the sufficiency, the supremacy, and the sovereignty of God himself to do all that he has commanded he would do, then there is yet a sacrificial flesh which would atone. There in verse 15. Can even sacrificial flesh avert your doom? Under the old covenant, the answer is no. Under the new covenant, the answer is yes. But this is not the blood of bulls and goats. This is the blood of Christ. Christ is the sacrificial flesh offered once and for all under the new covenant in which it is established that we may have the blessing of God secured for us, no longer conditioned upon our merits, our obedience, and all perfection, but upon Christ's perfection.
This is the truth, that Christ is both perfectly obedient to God's will and law and yet is cursed for our disobedience. And so the new covenant which is established is established upon Christ's better promises, upon his death, upon his resurrection. And he perfectly fulfilling God's law secures for us the blessing and upon perfectly submitting to the wrath of God, thereby taking on the curse, frees us from the guilt of sin that under Christ we would not have. At the end of the day, we become like that planted by God as we are united by faith to Christ. In verse 16 it says, The Lord once called you a green olive tree, beautiful with good fruit, but yet with the roar of a great tempest he will set fire to it and its branches will be consumed. Now friends, turn with me and we'll end here into Romans. This is a beautiful tree that's described of God's planting and establishing the people of himself. Romans chapter 11. And notice the blessing that you and I have because of this. In verse 11 of chapter 11 of Romans, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? That is, of Israel? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will the full inclusion means? Now, I'm speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am... An apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow make my fellow Jews jealous. This is a desire, just as the prophet Jeremiah did to Judah in his days. Paul resonates with Jeremiah. He quotes him even in Galatians. But jump down with me in verse 17. If for some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, Gentile, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. For you are, remember, if you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. When you will, you say, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So how are we brought into the promises here? How are we made to be partakers of God's good character, righteous, faithful character, all the promise he has? It is this plant, this tree which is planted by God, was consumed in wrath so that we may be grafted into it. God cuts the branches that were not bear fruit and grafts in us as wild olive fruit trees that we may bear fruit for God. It says in verse 22 then, Note the kindness in the severity of God. Severity to those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in His kindness. Otherwise, you too would be cut off. See, we have this blessing of God's covenantal protection. We have all of the rights and privileges of covenantal children. We are adopted as sons and daughters. We are given safety and security in the land that he has prepared for us, not because of our merits, not because of our conditioned upon his obedience, but upon Christ and our faith which unites us to him. We become planted in the gospel. Christ's sacrifice on the cross cross was him sacrificing himself as an offering where God's wrath is poured out upon him 
that we would receive the blessings obtained by his obedience to God. If you think for a moment that you could obtain this on your own, you would be in the same boat as Judah. And yet if we turn our hearts to Christ, to the one Christ, who is both the author and perfecter of our faith, the mediator of a true and better covenant, we can heed this warning with Jeremiah to look to God as sufficient, who has provided for us all things that we need, who has given us his word, which guides us in all wisdom and righteousness, whose sovereignty and supremacy is on display in the church as we give ourselves then to the obedience, not on a, as a condition of that favor, but as a response to that favor. We do all this for the glory of Jesus. So friends, lastly, you should examine yourself and ask yourself, is my faith uniting me to this God whereby I walk in faith and obedience to his word? Or do I, like Judah, assume that I can turn my heart to other idols and yet still be in the good grace of God? If that's you this morning, then I want to commend you to look to Christ, consider your standing before God, and give yourself to the work that Christ has done for you. You cannot earn it, you cannot keep it, but it is yours for the taking. If you believe and trust in God's pledge to you that through Christ all the blessings and all the promises are yours, then you will indeed receive the inheritance of the saints, which is his riches and kindness toward us. Let's pray. Father, we ask God for your help in this. Indeed, Lord, command what you will, but will what you command. You are sovereign, sufficient, and supreme. You have given us your word. You have taught us how to live and obey. You have shown us our need for the true and better covenant. And you have supplied us with our Christ, who secures our provision, our protection, our security, and our salvation. And so we obey not as those earning salvation, but as those who have received it. And we walk in faith, knowing that you have pledged yourself unconditionally to us, and you have brought us into the fellowship of the triune God, partakers of the divine nature, with a glorious inheritance for all the saints in Christ. Help us to know this, remember this, and heed the warnings, but also the encouragement to walk in this. In Jesus' name. In Christ alone, my all sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you would like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Just